0: Now, well, good morning. If you don't know me, I'm Scott Marshall, and I'm one of the elders here, and as you probably recognize, I am not Pastor Dave, and he is going to be gone this week and next, so I'm filling in him for him this week, and next week, uh, Brock Pena will be preaching to you, and so I guess the we tried to figure out who was going to go first, and he said age before beauty, and I don't know what that means, but this is what you guys, <laughs> this is what you guys get. And uh, I just want to thank you, I talked to many of you who uh, just talked to me during the week and this morning who said, uh, we're praying for you. And it just is a joy and it's an easy thing uh, to step in and preach to a congregation that really cares about the word and cares about um, its shepherds. And so it's just a great joy uh, to come before you. And so uh, I read this article that was titled, 25 Silly Things That Church Members Fight Over. And uh, here's a few that that surprised me: the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. Okay, how long is appropriate, or goatee? Right? Uh, whether a clock in the worship center should be removed or not? Which picture of Jesus should go in the foyer? All right, which is the correct one? The type or the brand of coffee that we need to serve? This may be getting personal for some of you. Who has access to the copy machine, right? Who can be running copies? Uh, And whether or not communion should be gluten-free. if you know me and my kids, that's kind of a personal personal one. So, uh, you know, as I read the list, I thought, you know, a lot of these just seem too ridiculous to be true, right? How can people fight over such silly things? And uh, just doing a little bit more research, there's a study in 2015, of about 14,000 churches. And the study just said that you know, three out of four of all those churches, 75%, said you know, they have definitely experienced significant conflict in the past. And I, part of me thought, well, what about the other 25%? You know, um, But they said that one in five are in conflict at any one time. So if you look at any um, group of churches, about one in five is, is enduring some kind of conflict. And three out of five, so 60%, Um, they've had a, a conflict just in the last five years. And so just thinking about that, you know, the reality is that whenever you get two or more people together, right, for those of you who are married, right, whenever you get two or more people together, there's a potential to have, you know, conflict. And the things that we choose to disagree about and the way in which we approach those disagreements, the way that we deal with them, it can produce Healthy growth and resolution, but it can also be a a source of devastating destruction. And so uh, the message today and our text for today is going to be from Philippians. If you want to turn to the second chapter in Philippians, we're going to be looking at verses two through eight. And the title of the message is Humility that Unifies, Esteeming Others Above Ourselves or Above Yourself. And so my goal for the message is to encourage you today and exhort you towards a greater humility that is going to produce a greater unity amongst us as a body of Christ. So if you would, just join me for a moment in prayer. Father, we give you thanks today for Jesus, the bridegroom, and for this church and the church as a whole who is his bride. We're so thankful for this church. When you redeemed us for yourself, you placed us in your church. And you have given us a place where we can become who you created us to be. Thank you for loving the church, your bride. Thank you for giving yourself up for her, that you might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water of the word, that you might present the church to yourself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And may you do that this morning as we study your word together. Amen. So let's... uh, Let's read the text together before you get started. So if you would, Philippians chapter 2, verses 2 through 8. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So we're going to go through these verses, and my outline is, um, in verse 2, we're going to talk about how this is a, there's a real mandate towards unity, um, and that mandate is that we're to have the ha- same mind or the same attitude. There's, we're to be unified in our mind and our attitude. And then, uh, point 2, we're going to talk about what's the manner. How do we do that? What is the manner of unity that we're called to? And that's a two-part. It's, it's a humble and a low view of ourselves, and an, an exalting or a lifting up a high view of the others in our body. And then third, you could say uh, the model for unity or even the model of humility. We're looking at how humility is the way in which we achieve this, this unity. And so our model for humility, our model for unity, is the humility of Christ. And so that's going to be how we walk through um, this text, looking kind of at verse by verse. And so when you think about our church, one of the things that the enemy that Satan and even the world would love to see is when the church is divided, when it's broken, when it's fighting against one another. Because it distracts us from our purpose. It distracts us from the mission of the gospel. And there's plenty of things that we could argue about besides the, the silly things. When I, uh, one of the ministries that uh, I've been involved in since I've been here has been the music ministry. And I think every ministry is like this, where there's things that people, they have different opinions on. When I think about music... Um, I've heard differing opinions on what's the style of song that we sing, what's the style of the instrumentation, or the choice of songs. Uh, what about these lyrics versus those lyrics? Um, which vocalists? How many vocalists? How loud should it be? What's just too loud? How much is too soft? Right? And you go on through the list, and there's so many opportunities uh, for conflict. And so whenever we have this conflict, it, it's it's vitally important that we know what is important enough really to have conflict about? And if it is important, how do we go about having that conflict? And so when we go through these conflicts in the flesh, what can happen is that we can speak words and have actions that can be offensive and hurtful and cause deep wounds and pain in those whom we love and those whom we're called to be united with. And so we're going to jump into the middle of the letter where Paul's going to address how do we do this. All right. So I do want to give you guys a little bit of context that Paul's writing, if you've ever studied Philippians, he's writing from, anybody know? Where's he writing from? Prison, yeah, he's writing from prison. And it's a very positive, very encouraging letter. He's, he starts off encouraging them and thanking them for their partnership that they've shared with him in the gospel. And in the first chapter, if you flip back to the first chapter, There's a prayer that he has. He says, uh, God is my witness, starting in verse 8. He says, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. So that's the message that Paul, and that's the context, and that's, that's really the context that I'm coming to you with today, is that my prayer, when I look out and see, we're not a, a church that in, is in the middle of this great conflict and there's all this fighting going on. Much like the Philippian church, you're doing well. And I want to encourage you, as Paul did, to love more and more. And that you grow in your understanding and discernment of how to do that. And he says that the goal is that we would approve what's excellent and be pure and blameless. So that we can uh, love one another in a way that honors and gives glory to and praise to God. And so he goes on to continue on in that first chapter. He talks about how the spread of the gospel is happening in the Roman guard. He talks about those that have preached for different motivations. And he says uh, later in chapter 1, verses 27 and 28, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And so he gives them the goal, the faith of the gospel. And he says they're almost in three, three different ways. Standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, standing side by side. So you can see he's kind of getting at this heart of be united for the gospel. And so he doesn't exactly know when he'll see them again. He believes that he will, um, but he's in prison at the point, at this point. And so as we're, getting clo- we're closing in on our text, uh, he says at the beginning of chapter two, right? If there's, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, so he's kind of revisiting all that they have in Christ. And it's something that that is one of the sources that does unify us, is that's the one thing, he's the one thing that has brought us all together is Jesus. That I don't think you would be successful if you were to think of is there something else that all of us have in common that draws us all together? Is there, is there any kind of bond outside of Jesus that would draw this group of people, this diverse group of people together? And so he's talking about, look at all that you have through Jesus Christ. And I will say, it, in, in the ESV it says, so if there's any encouragement. He's not saying that, okay, I'm writing to, say, 100 of you, and if you're one of the 20 or 30 or 40 that have been encouraged, this message is for you. If you haven't been encouraged, then don't worry about it. That's, that's not what he's saying when he says if here. It's more of the sense of since this has happened. Because this has happened. And so because you have encouragement in Christ or since you have fellowship with the Spirit, you ought to live in this way. And that's an idea that occurs all throughout the, the New Testament is that God's grace towards us always has an effect. And Paul talks about it earlier and later in the same letter. He says... Back in verse one, chapter one, verse six, I'm sure of this: that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So, whatever God has begun in us, He is continuing that work on. It's not you're saved; it's all done. So, we have to kind of approach, the, you know, our life in the body as that process. Every single one of us is a part of a work that is continuing. That God is working and working and working through to completion. And so there's a sense in which we need to continue to grow in that sanctification. And he says later on in the same chapter, in chapter 2, he says it differently in in chapter uh, 2, verse 12. In the middle there, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so it's neat how he says, You need to work this out, And it's God who's working it through you. And so that's the idea. God has done this in you, and it's not something that he has completed. He's going to carry it on to completion. And so that's the tone of the message that we're looking at, is how can God continue to work this out in us? So this brings us to our first uh, first verse, verse 2. And that's the mandate of being unified, or the mandate of unity. So look at verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and one mind. Right? You kind of hear very similar thing four different times, right? Being of the same mind, one, having the same love, two, full accord, three, one mind, four. And uh, this just re- reminds me, uh, you know, as I found that as a parent, I often need to repeat myself. I'm not mentioning any particular children. Um, But oftentimes it's that repetition over and over that kind of carves that character out. And oftentimes we need to hear the same thing. And so repetition in the scriptures, it reminds us that something is important. And so it's true in scripture that repetition reminds us that something's important. Repetition reminds us that something's important. Okay, I just want to make sure. So he says this four different ways. His first way of saying is complete my joy by being of the same mind. And so the word here, we just want to make sure that we understand that mind here is not just, it does mean that we have an agreed upon uh, knowledge or belief in a certain truth. We believe in the gospel, all right? It has to do with what we think, what we consider, and as well, it's what we regard or care for have interests in, our sentiment, our feeling is towards. So our mind, it's a lot has to do with what we think and what our attitude is. It's kind of both those two things together. And so it is knowledge, it is doctrine, it's theology, but it is also what do we esteem, how highly do we esteem it? How, what value do we place upon things? How high are they in our importance and how low are they? And we're to have one mind in that sense, and so I'll get, I guess I'll think of an example would be many times you've heard here that we have a, what type of a view of God, a, hey, good job. We have a high view of God. And so what we mean by that is very deeply tied to we have a deep commitment to study and to teach what God reveals about himself to everyone through the scriptures. And so there's a deep commitment to that high view of God in terms of what we teach, what we believe. But it also means that it works itself out in how we esteem God and worship God and love God. And so our affections are pointed to this God who is so glorious. And so when we say we have a high view of God, our mind about God is not only all those beautiful truths about who God is, but it's the attitude and love with which we esteem God, and how he, we hold him up, and seek to love him above all things. Okay, and so in this letter, Paul is, is not really, when he says this to them, he's not so much correcting them. It's not, a, it's not a huge thing that they're all divided and split up, and so with us, it's kind of the same way. We want to understand how important this is, regardless of whether or not there's a conflict going on at the time, and so it has a lot to do with not only knowing and believing the right things about God, but also knowing how and what to esteem in terms of God and his kingdom. And so there is some hints, if you'll look uh, later in, the, in Philippians, there is a little bit of a hint that there's, there's not a complete unity. There was a couple of people, and I looked up how to say one of these names, and I got about five different uh, responses, so I'm going to do my best. But He says, I entreat you, Odea, And I entreat Suntukai, which is not what I expected. Uh, But we're just going to go with that. I entreat these two to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. Together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So evidently it was important enough that he wanted to single them out by name and say, help these women come together. Help them to, to be in agreement. And so there's this oneness of mind, this heart and attitude, and although they differ in so many ways, they agree and they're united on what's important. And I just want to make a side note that I'm not preaching, I don't believe this is saying that all the believers have the same thoughts and beliefs, okay? There's a very, very diverse group of people. Um, One mind is about united in their purpose, united in what they value, although there can be a variety in the ways in which they approach that one purpose and that one goal. And so unity is not just, yes, we all agree on every single thing. Um, I I really like the the quote by uh, Ruth Graham, was Billy Graham's wife, and she said, when two people agree on everything, one of them's unnecessary. And she kind of had that idea like, yeah, we agree on the important things, right? But it's okay to, to disagree on, on some things. But uh, the, the, the heart, you know, we can see for unity, it comes through in Jesus as well. So in John, listen to how Jesus prayed. This is a John's uh, recording of Jesus' prayer in the garden. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one, Excuse me, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one. A second time. Even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfectly one. That's the third time. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you love me, and so again I talked about it just a second ago that the enemy would love to see us divided because it makes us look like everyone else in the world, right? Every we all have things in which we fight and disagree and argue about in almost every context in almost every organization, um, but Jesus says explicitly here twice. Why are we to be one? Why is that such a big thing? It's so that we can convey and the world will see that you have sent me. That you have loved them even as you have loved me. And so, uh, you know, when I was thinking about our church, you know, I was talking with with Dave about, you know, how to preach. And he said, well, what's the problem that you're wanting to solve? And, you know, when I think about our church, there's not this tremendous divisiveness that's going on. We've really been blessed with you know unity through a lot of challenges uh, through the past several years and you know just recently in the last say in the last five years you know we've had the pandemic where there was issues of you know do we meet in person do we meet in remote do we wear masks do we not wear masks do you get vaccinated do you not get vaccinated what role does the church play in this and I can't tell you and maybe you guys too I talked to so many people whose churches were divided and splitting up and arguing and bickering about this and they couldn't really devote their time to the spread of the gospel and the sharing of the gospel to the lost world around them. And so we were extremely blessed and fortunate and fortunate that God has preserved a lot of our unity through those potentially divisive things. And as I talked to some of those people, some of them split, some of them are still in their same churches, but they're still hurt, they're still wounded, they're still thinking about um, those words that were said or those attitudes that people had. And so when we think about unity, there's a sense in which we're not only dealing with maybe conflicts that we have, but, but protecting, right? protecting the church from something that can distract us and take away from God's ultimate purpose, which is the spread of the gospel. And so my prayer, again, that we prayed earlier, is the same as in chapter 1. If you think about, you know, why, why is this so important? That It's that our love would abound more and more, that we could approve what's excellent, and that we would be pure and blameless, filled with the fruit of righteousness, so that it's to the glory and the praise of God. And so I think, let encourage you to just be reflective for a minute. And this is something that I was doing. If you think back to all those conflicts, maybe you've been here five years, five days, 50 years. Think back upon conflicts that you've had and think about and ask yourself, is there a place where I could have had a higher opinion of the person that I was that I was disagreeing with? Is there a place where I could have maybe had a more humble or a lower view of my own opinions in those in those conflicts? There's a great unity that comes from a common commitment to Christ and an attitude of humility, okay? And so uh, I, it, one thing this remind me of is, now I have to admit and confess here, I'm a huge fan of sports movies. Uh, at, our, at our family, when, uh, whenever it's movie night, sometimes I get this, is it a sports movie, right? Some of the kids are like, I don't know if I can take another sports movie. So one that I, one that I watched is uh, called Miracle, and if you're not a sports fan, this was from the 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey, uh, hockey team. And all the years leading up, the Soviets are dominating. We're in the middle of the Cold War. We're kind of going in defeated. And uh, this U.S. team, it's made up of all the, the best amateur players. At the time, I don't know why, we didn't let the professionals go to the Olympics. Had to be the amateurs. So all these amateur hockey players, these college players, are brought together, with this huge task of trying to beat this team that's been undefeated for several Olympics in a row. And one of the themes in that movie that kind of stood out to me as I was thinking about this is that this team that had this huge goal was made up of players who were the best in the country, but who were often hated rivals. They hated one another. Because they were the one who took away their national championship. Right? They fought each other for that that goal, that personal goal. And uh, the coach, as he worked to try and build this camaraderie, would say, you know, tell us where you're from, who you are. And they would say, I'm Rob McClanahan from St. Paul, Minnesota, University of Minnesota, right? And this one of the other guys. What, what would you say? Well, I'm Jack O'Callaghan, Charleston, Massachusetts, Boston University, right? And so these rivals, these rivalries would, would kind of keep them from really accomplishing anything. And so throughout the movie... Like, you're waiting to see if they, if they ever come together. There's a point at which I love. He's, he's having them skate back and forth because for, they just don't get it. Back and forth, back and forth. Again, 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 again. They're all collapsing. They're passing out. One of the players, just out of nowhere, he yells out. I'm not going to yell like he did. If right? you've So he yells out, Micah Ruzioni, Winthrop, Massachusetts. That's where he's from. There's this pause. And the coach says, Who do you play for? And he, he yells out, you know, I play for the United States of America, right? And he kind of tries to, from that moment on, the, the, the coach tries to establish that it's not these little goals that you have for your school and your national championship that matter. It's one goal that we're all united in. And I think that's a good illustration in the sense that sometimes, right, there's nothing wrong with those goals that they had, and they ought to be working towards them. And sometimes we all have particular passions in the church that we want to fight towards and want to work towards those goals. And the one thing we want to make sure is that they're always underneath the common goal of being unified in the gospel of Christ. And so other people in the church might not be as excited about your particular passion in ministry, whether that's... Um, pro-life or political involvement or homeschooling or a variety of ways in which you can be passionate about ministry. But we want to be united in the sense that we esteem uh, one another and we esteem the gospel above those things. And so as Paul uh, talks about that, he says having the same love and being of one accord. So we're not only of the same mind, but we have the same love towards one another's. And he starts and ends with having one mind, the same mind. I think it's interesting that it's not just everybody believes this, now go out and do ministry. He says you're all to have the uh, one mind. So if it was just the same mind, you have that mind, you have that mind, go out and do ministry on your own. We're to have this oneness where we think about how we all fit together as a body. We're not a whole whole bunch of little tiny um, bodies, we're just one body connected. So that's our mandate. We're to have this unity That's from verse 2. Let's get into verse 3 and 4, which is a lot of the heart of the the instructive part. And that is, what's the manner of unity that we're supposed to have? So this is verse 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So if you're taking notes, right, right this point, it kind of has three parts to it. Three things you put off, three things that you put on. So the first thing that you put off is do nothing from selfish ambition. And so this selfishness, this selfish ambition is a desire to, it's like an elevation that you would like to gain some attention. You'd like to be esteemed by others. You want to be noticed. You want to put yourself forward. It has that meaning of like, it was used at the time for a politician trying to gain a following, right and so he used it a a little bit earlier in chapter one same word the former proclaimed christ out of selfish ambition that's our word not sincerely but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment and i think uh, dave preached on this a while back about how you have a starter that's on the team in our sports analogy warning you have a starter that goes down somebody's got to come in and and take the take their place and he, he kind of talked about how, you know, Paul's listing out these two, two different parties that are preaching in this place while he's in prison, and, you know, some have this earnest desire for God's glory, and they're kind of in that, let's do it for so-and-so who's, who's out of the game. And some have this selfish motivation that's, this is my chance, now's my time to shine, right? I can, I can gain some glory now that Paul's out of the picture. And so that's kind of the first thing that we are supposed to put off, is seeking Public or personal recognition or glory, personal ambition, selfish ambition. It's it's kind of the opposite of uh, what Truman would say. He has the the quote that it's amazing what you can accomplish if you don't care who. You know this, who gets the credit, right? If you don't care who gets the credit, you can accomplish a lot if you're not worried about who's going to get the credit. So uh, you know, when I think about the application for this. This can be outward, or it can even be inward as well, that um, I was thinking, you know, and when I'm in Bible study, uh, should I say something so that it makes me look, oh, this is gonna make me look really good, really smart, or like I've really studied the word, or am I contributing to the needs? Is it gonna benefit those who listen? When I'm serving, is it, uh, if I do the most, then people are gonna really think that i am got a heart of service? Or is it just looking for the needs, looking for what needs to be done? Um, so it's this inner desire to be seen in an elevated way. So that's the first thing to put off. Nothing from selfish ambition and nothing from conceit. Or some translations you say vain conceit. And that comes from the idea, it's kind of an emptiness to it. it there's an emptiness to conceit. There's an emptiness, the word was vain glory. It points out that your goal is empty. And sometimes it's not only empty, but dangerous. Now, here's another article that's even less serious than the first one. It was called... The danger of selfies. It was reported in 2015 that more people died from trying to take a selfie than shark attacks. So, what's going on? They're trying to get this glorious, if you guys, right, everybody knows what a selfie is, every generation. Get this picture of yourself with something amazing in the background or with some amazing person. So, the list of things that they died from falling off bridges. Falling off of rocks. Falling down the steps of the Taj Mahal. There's a lot of falling, so be careful when you're taking a selfie. Uh, Being struck by lightning, holding a selfie stick. (laughs) Right? The selfie stick is a long metal rod with your phone at the end, so you get a bigger background. So, struck by lightning, posing with dangerous animals at the zoo. Or with guns that were loaded and accidentally discharged, or believe it or not, a couple of soldiers with live grenades taking a selfie. Yeah, so their search for glory was empty and also dangerous, and th- it can be that way, right? The more we're caught up at consuming this name for ourselves, we don't we don't have no idea. Like maybe there's something dangerous in what I'm doing, and so whether it's selfish ambition or conceit there's always this potential that it can create this conflict. And it can be outward, it can be something that's not as obvious. Um, In Galatians, when Paul wrote to Galatians, he said this, "...you're called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another." So conflict can be this biting and devouring, this this war of words that just little by little bite, bite, bite. You can you can tend to devour one another, and that can come from this vain glory, this selfish ambition. And so, partly, when you think about the manner of humility, it's kind of in two parts. The first part is this a lowering of ourself, right? The word humble comes from this lowering, a low view of ourself and our own uh, our own needs, our own wants, and so. Paul says in Romans, By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure that, of faith that God has assigned. So when we think about that humility, it's not just that. We're going to keep moving on. It says, Do nothing from these selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant. So it's almost like a relative thing. Right? It's not just, I'm low, and that's humility. There's also an esteeming or a, look, a higher view of the others in the body. Think of others or count others more significant than yourselves. And I would guess, you know, if you could condense the sermon into, into one sentence, it would probably be that. Humility that unifies is to esteem others in the church more significant than you esteem yourself. That's the heart of the message. If you want to have unity, and if we are going to have unity in the church, we have to approach every person in the body as giving them a great esteem and honor and lifting them up and thinking highly of them more than we think of our own mind, our own opinions, our own desires. And so it doesn't mean, when it says more highly, it doesn't mean superior in skill or ability, okay? So don't come later and say, I would like to be on the worship team because you said I'm higher than everybody on, uh, and and so I like to sing, right? So there's skills like preaching and teaching and singing and playing. And so um, there's so many ministries that we have, so many spiritual gifts. But it has a lot to do with this idea of honor and esteem. And that's, what, that's what's in, in the verse here, is that we let go of honor that we think we're due, and we honor others above ourselves. And as we continue to look, right, we see, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So this is, this is now not just an attitude, but what are we looking towards, right? Think about when you're coming to church, when you're thinking about, I'm a part of Flint Hills Bible Church. Um, this is a very countercultural thing to think about—not uh, self-esteem, right? That's everybody wants positive self-esteem, but to think about others' esteem—and this is not something that I think comes natural to us. It's not something that came natural to me as a young believer. Uh, I'll just share with you that you know when I was a, I was uh, heard the gospel and really understood it the first time in high school. I believe you know I was saved at that time and really started to learn late high school, early college, and. When I thought about church, what I look for, I was thinking about church as an essential place that I can grow to be like Christ. And I thought that meant I have to, I'm looking for good teaching, someone who can explain the Bible to me. Somewhere that has good music, which means I like the music, right? Um, it had engaging Sunday school classes. And what did that mean? It meant I could ask all the questions that I wanted, and the teacher would just focus on me and feed me all the answers till I understood Um, and I wanted to be involved in in in-depth Bible studies, right? So that even if I didn't do my homework, the teacher would have explained to me what this text is about. And you can kind of see the theme that sometimes, uh, you know, because I saw, it was tremendous, that when you come into a church and you see people loving one another, you see the community of God, it's a very attractive thing. It's very appealing to want to be a part of that, to be on the receiving end of that grace, that love, that um, I would say that hospitality. If you've been invited over, come over for dinner. Come to our place. That's a wonderful thing, and that's kind of what I was looking for. And that's how I determined the church that was that was right for me. Right? I was kind of shopping around. And uh, what I didn't see uh, was the value really of serving and being a part of a church and thinking about God's role for me is to give to the church. Um, and, you know, later in my junior year of college, as I started to be involved in serving in the ministry planning weekly meetings, um, living with roommates who played on the worship team, uh, starting to lead Bible studies or prayer groups, I started to slowly see, and the Spirit revealed to me through texts like this, that really one of the primary purposes of the church is that we love and serve one another, not just that we come in and receive. And so I've often learned that one of the best ways to grow personally is not just through quiet, personal private study and contemplation. One of the best ways to learn and to grow and become like Christ is to pour yourself into serving other people. Okay, Think about the way Jesus trained the disciples. How did he, he poured into them and then they went out and ministered to people. Okay, It involves changing our mindset so that we can think about what I can take from church and think about what I can give to the church. So this brings us to Jesus, right? I said, think about how he did it. This is our model. This is kind of how we would want to wrap things up. It's the model of Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, and being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross." So the point of our salvation is to become like Christ, and it's the same with humility. Um, This is a, I will say this, as I got to study this portion of Scripture, it's tremendously deep and rich in terms of its theology of who Christ is. And what I only think I want to focus on at the end today is as Paul was using Christ as his exhibit of how we can have this humility, right? How we can have the humility is to have this same mind of Christ. And what did Christ do? It says that he did not hold on to or grasp onto the fact that he was God. Notice it says he was in the form of God in verse 6 and in verse 7. He took the form of a servant. And so he is and was and always will be God. And in his incarnation, he actually became a servant. He didn't just pretend to be servant. He didn't just serve. He became, he was in the form of a servant. And when, when it talks about him emptying himself, I think one of the main points that I would point to is that there was a giving up of all that he had when he was in fellowship and receiving worship in heaven. This honor, this glory, and the way he was which, in which he was esteemed. If you listen to John 17 that we talked about earlier, his prayer, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So he's referring back it was past tense right i had this glory with you before i came down to the earth now that i'm returning you know glorify me again to that presence so there's a sense in which jesus emptied himself and that's our model emptying ourselves of that glory and as he said in matthew just as the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many and as you think about it there's vastly different pictures of jesus in revelation Versus the picture of Jesus in Isaiah. In Revelation, in chapter 7, they're around the throne and they're saying, Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. But in Isaiah, we read, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, He was Despised and we esteemed Him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. So if we're going to follow the model of Jesus, we have to be willing to walk in those steps, to not be esteemed. Even if it's something that maybe you are deserving of honor and glory, you've done something wonderful. What Jesus has done, we're to follow in that example, and we love because He first loved us, and we can serve because He served. And so I do want to say that uh, if you are listening to this message um, as someone who doesn't know Christ, that's impossible for you to do. There's no possible way for you to have the mind of Christ other than to be saved by Christ, all right? Apart from Jesus, you're an enemy and we're focused only on ourself. But if it describes you, the call that you would hear is the message of Jesus that turn from your sin and come to Jesus seeking grace and forgiveness for your sins and he will save you because of his grace. He lived this sinless life that you couldn't live and he died the death that you deserve for our sin in your place and he does give us, all of us, the greatest gift that he can give which is himself. And so for all of you that are followers of Christ, I want to end just with the prayer that we began with that as we think about The mandate that we have to be unified when you think about the manner in which we can be unified which is the humility of christ and as we focus on jesus who is our model my prayer is that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what's excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through jesus christ to the glory and praise of god let's pray together Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you for their listening and attentive hearts. As each Sunday they come and gather to hear your word preached. And I pray that as we read and open your word week by week, that it would have the effect that you promised. You say in your word that it falls like rain to the earth and doesn't return to you void, but it accomplishes that which you spoke it for. And so I pray that you would accomplish in our body a greater love, a greater humility, and that we be more and more unified in the goal and the purpose of your great glory and the spread of your great gospel. Help us to learn and to grow in the way that we look to the needs of one another and to esteem others above ourselves. In Jesus' name.